Welcome to the evening message at Pearl Presbyterian Church. I'm grateful to be bringing the word to you this evening. Let me open by reading a section of scripture from the book of Daniel chapter 4. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Let's pray together. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If we could count, they would be more than the sand. Our thoughts of you are so vast, O God, because you are so magnificent in all your ways. You are magnificent in your understanding, Lord, knowing the end from the beginning. You are magnificent in your holiness, since we know that you are pure and wholly devoted to your own name. You're magnificent in your glory, promising us that there is none greater than you in all of the created order. You're magnificent in your wisdom, having not only knowledge, but the power to act according to that knowledge. You are wholly glorious and altogether lovely. And of course, O oh God, you are magnificent in your grace, choosing to look with favor upon sinners who don't deserve it. And we know and confess it about ourselves that we are breakers of your commands. For instance, O oh God, you tell us not to kill and yet we know so well that this week we have certainly hated others in our heart. And though you tell us not to kill, we haven't done all that's in our power to preserve the lives of others as we ought to. The truth is, O oh God, even for those of us who love you, we have fallen short of your standard and have still loved ourselves and regarded ourselves as more important than our neighbor. Forgive us, O oh God, not because... We deserve forgiveness, but for the sake of your Son. And we know that you will, O oh God, forgive us, not because we presume so, and certainly not because we deserve forgiveness, but because you promise us in your word that if we confess our sin, you are faithful, and you are just, and you will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Lord, you show mercy and kindness to us, and we come before you desiring to glorify you by remembering some of the ways you've shown grace to us. You have been gracious to us, O God, in providing physical health to your people. Even during this season, O God, it seems, as far as we can tell, that you have been deeply, deeply gracious in sparing our church of the sickness which is certainly going around. You've been gracious not only in providing for physical health, but also for our financial needs, Lord. When so many are in dire straits, Lord, you have continued to meet the needs of those in this congregation. Seeing fit to offer merciful provision and sustain us in this life for another week. We see all over the world that suffering and insecurity is a daily matter for so many. And yet we have lived with plumbing and with housing, with food and clean water with places to sleep, beds to sleep in, and needs that have been met. To you, O oh God, we offer thanks, and we praise your glorious name. We ask you, O oh God, to let your name be glorified. Lord, let it be treated as holy. Let it be sanctified, God. Be glorified before the world as a holy God. Fulfill our desire 
to exalt you, Lord, the Lord our God, to worship at your footstool and to meet with you at your holy hill. We want to meet again physically as a church, O oh God. Would you give us the desires of our heart? Would you help us to be safe and careful as we do it? Be with the session as we even look to the future and prepare for the day when we will be able to resume meeting as a church, Lord. Would you give us wisdom? We need it, God. We're not epidemiologists. We're not experts, oh God. We are very much at the mercy of the people who do know what they're talking about. Or at least they know better than we do. Help us to praise your name, your great and terrible name, for it is holy. As the high and holy one, you live in the midst of your praises of, of Israel. And so don't just be glorious, but be glorified in us. Be glorified in our hearts. Let our hearts rejoice because we have trusted in your holy name so that others can see us and rejoice in our, tr in, in our trust and say to themselves, Yahweh is a glorious God. And he must be worthy of our trust too. Look at how the saints of Pearl Presbyterian Church glorify and, and, and delight in such a God as this. We pray, Lord, that you would use us to convey that message to the world. May our neighbors see our good works, see the way we love them, see the way we prioritize them, even above ourselves and our own priorities, and may they praise our Father who is in heaven. We desire it, and we seek it, and we ask you to help us even tonight to bring more glory to you. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the scripture passage for our evening service comes from the book of 1 Samuel as we continue in our series uh, on 1 Samuel. Uh, we will read this evening from chapter 17, verses 1 through 30. Hear now the word of God. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah and Aphes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew, it, drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. And he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on, his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his beam was like a weaver's beam, his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of 
an Aphethite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of, Je of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went and went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and the next Abinadab, and the next Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousands. See if your brothers are well, and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the, to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. <coughs> as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and the king may enrich the man who kills him with great riches, and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is the uncircumcised Philistine? that he should defy the armies of the living God. And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? He turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this evening. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, your scripture tonight is unbelievably rich. If you would send your spirit to bless your word, we would have the eyes and ears to understand and to perceive the marvelous goodness of your text tonight. Would you do that for us so that we can see and take hold of Christ? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight's passage is one of the most well-known biblical stories in all of Western culture. It's known to people in church and people outside of church. Whether you're religious or whether you're irreligious, you know the story of David and Goliath. I mean, when, in popular culture, when we're talking about an, uh, an uneven match between two individuals or two groups, we usually use the phrase, this is a tale of David and Goliath. It doesn't matter if you've actually read the book of 1 Samuel. You know the phrase, you know the saying, you know the idea of the story. Of all the stories that Sunday school teachers the world over have taught in a thousand different permutations, perhaps none is better rehearsed 
than the story of David versus the Philistine, Goliath. However, this is the one, one aspect of the story that it seems like everyone nearly misses. When the story is told, <coughs> the focus is almost always on the bravery of David. And the emphasis is almost always on his willingness to go up against this giant. So they look at David's story, and they see it as the perfect illustration of how to stand up to challenges in a difficult situation, right? How, do, how does it get applied? Um, you're a football team. Your record is 0 and 10, and you're going up against the state champs. What do they say? Remember David and Goliath. Right? You're a small business owner trying to make it in competition with Walmart. What is the illustration? Remember David and Goliath. Here's the problem. This is not exclusively meant to be a tale of human courage. Um, this is not... At its core, an inspirational story about how each of us can face the giants of our own lives. This is a tale about God, viewed through the eyes of Israel. It's similar to Jonathan's story, if you remember about a month or so back, where Jonathan stormed the Philistine camp. And it's similar in this sense. It is a story of faith. It isn't the faith that saves, though. It's the God that we put our faith in who saves. You see, this is not a story about us. Even the story of David and Goliath is not a story about us. It's a story about him. It's a story about what he is like as our God and as our deliverer. One commentator says it like this. It is Yahweh who gives victory, and he may give it to the weak in order that his power might be known to all. And in this case, Israel is the weak one that God gives the victory to. Remember that the function of these stories in Israel's history was when they would read these narratives, their faith in God would be sparked and they would be reminded that they can trust God for the future. And there are a few things that cause the story of David and Goliath, though, to stand out from the other narratives that we see in the text, especially when we're talking about 1 Samuel. For one thing, this is the longest account we have of David doing battle with a foreign enemy. Something else that makes it stand out. This is the longest speech from a foreigner that we see in Scripture when Goliath speaks. <coughs> um, something else that makes it stand out is there are a lot of details here. Uh, details that aren't typical in the rest of this book, right? We get the size of Goliath's army. We get the amount of food that's delivered. Uh, we hear how many stones David picks up. A lot of detail here. In other words, this is not just another story. It's like the narrator hits the brakes and slows down. Um, you may notice this whenever you're on the highway. Uh, traffic's at a standstill, and you think, oh my, why is everyone going so slow? Well, as you're going down the highway, you look off to the side. You see it's a semi that's tipped over on its side. Uh, I think I saw this recently, and there was some, I think it was like honey buns or, or hostess, cu hostess cupcakes scattered across the highway. Well, they're not on the highway. They're all on the side, but everyone slows down. Why do they slow down? They slow down because they want to see what happened. Well, the, the narrator in Samuel, in First and Second Samuel, has slowed down, has hit the brakes here, and is giving us more detail. That's why you slow down, so you can pick up more details, so you can see more of what's going on. So the narrator does this here. 
And so the idea here is this is not just any other story. <coughs> the narrator knows this is a special standout event in the life of Israel, certainly in the life of David. And so the narrator intends to, to, for this story to stick in the heart and stick in the mind of future generations of Israelites. What we will do over the next couple of weeks is, is we're going to spend time with this already well-known story. Um, and this week, though, we aren't even going to get to the fight. Instead of getting right to it, the narrator really does spend a lot of time setting us up as readers so that we understand the situation that made it necessary for a country shepherd boy to step up to the defense of a full Israelite army in the first place. Why would this even be necessary? And that's where we find ourselves before we get to the actual fight, if you want to even call it that. And so tonight, as we set the stage for the battle between David and the giant, we see covenantal cowardice, providential preservation, and misunderstood ministration. Misunderstood ministration. Alliteration, it takes work. It takes work. you got to use words like ministration if you want to make it happen. But those are our three points tonight. Covenantal cowardice, providential preservation, and misunderstood ministration. Um, <clears throat> first tonight we see the covenantal cowardice of Israel. When the passage begins, some amount of time has passed since God told Saul that he rejected him and that he, he would tear the kingdom away from him. And so it's, it's been enough time at least that David has returned home. He has apparently ceased as the liar player for, for Saul and he gets old enough, at least, that when Saul sees him again, he doesn't seem to recognize him. And so likely we're talking about a distance between the last section and this section, a distance of, of years. So what's happened? The armies have drawn up for battle, and the Philistines have proposed an alternative to all-out war, uh, a battle of champions. If you've ever seen the movie Troy, at the beginning of the movie Troy, you remember there's this battle that Brad Pitt has with a giant from the other army. And instead of having both the armies lose half their numbers or something like that, they propose, hey, I'm going to have Achilles fight this giant at the beginning of the movie. And of course, Achilles kills the giant with, with one uh, uh, swing of his sword. Um, well, that's what's happening here. Now, here's what's interesting. Um, whoever wins, they, they, the other army surrenders. And so this is very risky. This is a risky thing to do. Um, we see examples of this in, in ancient history, by the way. This is not the first time this has happened. Although, interestingly, this was not typically how Philistines prosecuted uh, their battles. It seems like the Philistines do propose this in this situation because they do have Goliath, because he does pose such a tremendous advantage over anybody else that he would fight, that perhaps the Philistines eschew their typical approach and decide this is the best way to win the battle and, of course, spare our own lives. So the champion's name is Goliath of Gath. Now, think of that city, Gath. If you remember... Uh, in the past, that the Ark of the Covenant had been in the city of Gath and terrorized that city. And if you remember, Gath and the countryside around it were struck with tumors. And of course, you'll remember God single-handedly, by, by uh, means of the Ark, or uh, moved, was, <laughs> removed the Ark from Philistine territory without the help of any Israelites. 
And so he struck the people with tumors. He, he left them fleeing from the Ark of the Covenant and got himself home without anybody's help. And so God has already terrorized Goliath's ancestors. And now he's about to terrorize Goliath's, Goliath as well. So here he is. Goliath is presented. And if you wanted to translate the measurements that were given here, Goliath comes out to about nine and a half feet tall. Um, just for comparison, this is a very big man. The Guinness Book of World Records currently has the tallest man alive, somewhere around eight and a half feet. And so this man is about a foot taller than the tallest man who's living today. So this would have been most certainly a giant. <clears throat> and when you think of Goliath, don't think of some tall, skinny, gangly fellow. This man is strong. If you look at the narrative, you also see that his armor is very unique for the time. It weighs about 126 pounds. Just to give you a comparison, firefighters, when they run into to a fire, when they are fully geared up, they carry about 77 pounds on their back in, in terms of their uniform and in terms of their oxygen tank. Um, just also for comparison, soldiers in Afghanistan will routinely carry around 100 pounds of gear as well. So this is, this is a strong man. This is a big, big, tall man. Um, Goliath also wears a helmet, and, and helmets were not standard for the Philistines either. We have Egyptian drawings of Philistine warriors during this era, and they don't wear metal helmets. Instead, they wear a feathered headdress. Um, considering that there were no blacksmiths in Israel at this time, what that probably means is that the Israelites are wearing street clothes. They're wearing ordinary clothing, maybe some kind of leather chest plate at best, uh, up against somebody who is wearing chain mail and a metal helmet, right? So this, think of Goliath as someone who is very well prepared for battle, especially compared to the Israelites. This man is equipped more like a tank than a soldier. From an earthly perspective, you can see why they would be afraid. You know, maybe we can understand their fear. Um, but Israel is still making a mistake that, that Samuel even made earlier, right? What are they doing? They're afraid because they're judging by appearances. They're judging by appearances. See, Goliath seems powerful. Goliath seems threatening. Goliath seems like he might be skilled in battle. <clears throat> but because we know what happens, we also learn, not for the first time, that we shouldn't be deceived by appearances, right? Goliath looks strong. Without the Lord, he wouldn't have one muscle in his body. Goliath looks like a great warrior. I guarantee you this, Goliath never won one fight apart from the providence of God. He looks like a great warrior. He looks strong. Have we made the mistake of being impressed with someone because they look great on the outside? Have we made the mistake of believing, believing that someone is godly because they seem really put together? Um, have we made the mistake of believing that somebody is a godly person because they dress well or because they have had success in the financial world. Um, I don't believe this is the case in our church, so I feel like I, I feel safe in making this statement. But one of the things that often happens in, in a church is a church will have successful businessmen. 
and those successful businessmen will be promoted to being elders in the church, whether they are qualified for elders or not. And if you look at Paul's list of who ought to be an elder in the church, one of the things that he doesn't mention is being a successful businessman. And many churches are populated with elders who aren't qualified to be elders simply because they seemed put together. Their families seemed pleasant because they seemed like they have it all together. <clears throat> and of course, the result of that is churches that are run more like businesses than churches. Um, this is a lesson that Israel has forgotten though, right? God is reminding them that appearances are worthless. Have we taken that message to heart for ourselves that appearances really are worthless all that matters is this question is Yahweh with you that's it that's that's what makes all the difference now I call this first point covenantal cowardice and here's the reason why verse 11 says that Goliath came out he heckled the people and he threatened them. And the text says that when Saul and all, the Israel, all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Think of what their fear is communicating in this situation. They are ignoring God's repeated commands. Just in 1 Samuel alone, God has over and over and over again said, do not be afraid. It has been his constant refrain throughout this book that his people should not be afraid. But even when Israel was going into the land to begin with, God was saying it. And it, and it wasn't an empty command because what he does is he, he gives the command, do not be afraid. And then he pairs it with a promise. He says, don't be afraid because what? I will be with you. He gives substance to his command not to be afraid. Now you might say, oh, but see, they're afraid because God has rejected Saul. All right, Saul is, as I said last week, he is a city without walls. That's why they're afraid. Well, here's the problem. God has rejected Saul, but he hasn't rejected Israel. And yet Israel is quaking in its boots right now. They have no excuse. You see, for Israel to be afraid of the Philistines is to disbelieve God's promise and to disobey his command. It may be that each of us could use a bit of covenantal correction for our own covenantal cowardice. We need to be reminded of God's promises. We need to be reminded of his provision. We need to be reminded of the ways that he says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Is this a frightening season for you? Is this a fearful time for you? It may be. Well, if it is, there is no better time for us to be reminded of the fact that God is committed to his people. And second tonight, we see providential preservation um, now, God is going to answer this challenge. There's no way God will just let these things that, that, that Goliath is doing and saying go. Um, see, Goliath represents more than just a giant who wants to win a fight. As A.W. Pink puts it, he says, Goliath pictures to us the great enemy of God and man, the devil, seeking to terrify and bring into captivity those who bear the name of the Lord. So, so Goliath is, make no mistake, a demonic figure. And you can see it just in the, in the words that he speaks here. Now, don't get me wrong, God does deal with, with Goliath, but he also makes his people squirm. 
right? How long is the wait? It's 40 days. He leaves his people waiting for 40 days, right? The same amount of time that Jesus was tested in the wilderness. The same amount of time that the spies went in to Canaan, right? This is God's number of testing for his people. And so what does he do? He makes them squirm. He gives them time to summon the strength to respond, right? If they can manage it, which they can't. And so the way he plans to deal with his enemy is, is already happening. It's already underway, right? The rescue that God has planned for Israel comes in a way that only seems to be happenstance. David is home with his father. As the eighth son of Jesse, he has the indispensable job of taking bread and cheese, carbs and protein, to his three oldest brothers on the, on the front lines. You can imagine what young David expected to see when he arrived there. He, he expected to find battle. He, he expected to find fighting, maybe some, some blood being spilled, probably some fatalities by this point. He expected to go home with news of how the fighting is going, and yet when he gets there, he sees... Anything but a front line. Instead, he sees a king and his soldiers sitting, uh, cowering out of sight of the Philistine, dismayed and greatly afraid. This is pathetic. When we think of Israel and, and we think of the way God saves his people, it's always something that is a part of his providential plan that was set in motion long before, right? David could never have guessed that he would actually be needed in this way. His brothers surely could not either, right? Not, uh, nor could Saul. David got up like any other day. He went about his work. He found himself in a place where he was needed. Now, here's the point that William Blakey makes. He's a, a reformed writer. Uh, he says this. He reminds us that we should go into each day expecting to be sifted, expecting to be tested. He reminds us that when we get up, we should have a warfare mentality. We should be prepared for something to happen. Listen to what Blakey says. For all I know, this may be the most important day of my life. The opportunity may be given me to do a great service in the cause of truth and righteousness. Or the temptation may assail me to deny my God and ruin my soul. Oh God, be not far from me this day. Prepare me for all you have prepared for me. Prepare me for all you have prepared for me. Do you go about your day expecting trials? Expecting to be tested? Expecting an opportunity that you will need to rise to the occasion. Daily life is where these ordinary opportunities take place, and they often do look mundane. All right, the rescue of Israel comes by providential preservation, right? An ordinary boy going about his daily tasks. He may be a, have been a young man, we aren't sure, so... Teenager, boy, young man. Uh, an ordinary young man going about his daily tasks. He is given the opportunity to be used by God as God's instrument of deliverance. 
Will you be God's instrument this week? Will you be a tool in the Maker's hands? Have you made yourself available to the Creator of the universe to be useful to Him? David did. It made a big difference. Third, tonight we see misunderstood ministration. In verse 23, David hears the giant. The giant comes out. And he speaks words of mockery, words of blasphemy. He mocks the living God, the God of Israel, the God that David loves. Think about this. This is, this is not somebody who's used to hearing these kinds of things before. Uh, not too long ago, actually it was two years ago, so it was a little while ago. Uh, my family and I decided that we would, we would all go to New Orleans. Now don't laugh, it doesn't sound like the most family-friendly destination, but they do have an aquarium there. Um, and so this, we, we had a uh, hotel that we stayed at, and it was sort of on the outskirts of the, of the, uh, uh, the French Quarter. And we decided on uh, Saturday morning to go for a walk. We figured whatever happened the night before would be gone, the streets would be clear. We sort of enjoyed the, the very old feel of downtown New Orleans, and especially the French Quarter. As we were walking down the street, we started to see things we had never seen before. Um, there were things on the sidewalk that I didn't think I was going to see on the sidewalk. Um, there were uh, characters, interesting people. I think that's, I'm putting it kindly, uh, walking past us. And I remember at one point, a very strange man walked past my family. And as we were walking past, he looked straight at my wife's face and called her a name, the name of a female canine, and then kept walking. You might think, Adam, you should have stood up for her. Uh, you should have uh, uh, told that guy to, to back off. Well, he had already walked away by that point, in my defense, and also in my defense, he was completely drugged out. So I wasn't prepared to have a fight with a, a drug addict. Uh, but what happened was my children heard a word that they had never heard before. I think by that point. They hadn't yet gone to public school yet. <laughs> they heard something in their sheltered existence which was a shock to them. And it is shocking when you hear those sorts of things. Well, I want you to know this. David was shocked by what he heard from Goliath, right? Because this may have very well been the first time in David's entire life that he ever heard anybody with the temerity to speak these kinds of blasphemous words of ridicule against the God of heaven and earth. Just imagine, imagine what a shock it must have been to this pious shepherd boy to hear somebody speak like this. What an affront to God's name. I don't remember the first time I heard the Lord's name taken in vain. I do remember as a teenager, as an atheist, that I had a very colorful vocabulary. But somehow I feel like God in his, in his common grace still, I think he protected me from using the Lord's name in vain. Even as an atheist, it was almost as though I knew there was a line I could still walk up to and I couldn't go over. And I don't remember that I ever went over that line. I think it was something instinctive about my upbringing or it was just God being gracious to me. But even today as a Christian, when I, when I see a movie, I don't know if you watch movies. That's a lie. I'm sure you watch movies. 
And I'm sure you've seen movies where the Lord's name is used in vain. And it causes this repulsive reaction, at least in the heart of me, I think in the heart of God's people, whenever we hear our God's name spoken like that. And it's right for us to react with anger, with frustration, with despair when we hear that sort of thing. Well, David seems to have that reaction to this because he starts with questions after hearing what the, the giant has just been saying. He says, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach of, for Israel? He only has one thought. This guy has to go. Then he continues, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David is up in arms, right? He's basically saying, what are we going to do about this? Are we just going to let this guy talk this way about Yahweh, our Yahweh? David injects something very important into this situation, right? His response is, doesn't this have something to do with God? This isn't just about armies. This isn't just about numbers and men and, and weapons. Don't you think God cares about what is happening here? And how we're letting this man speak of the holy God of the universe. As Ralph Davis puts the problem, he says, Do you expect the living God to allow an uncircumcised Philistine to trample his name in military and theological mud? There's an important thing to remember here for us as Christians, right? We can get so caught up in strategies, in planning, in preparation, that we can forget God altogether, even though the thing we're planning is supposed to be all about God. We can forget God far more easily than we might expect, especially when things get busy. Israel and certainly its leaders seem to have forgotten now, an accusation does come David's way after he says all of this. David, at this point, doesn't even say what he wants to do. He's just asking questions. But his oldest brother, you'll remember, it's Eliab, the good-looking one, the one that Samuel thought at first that he would be king. Eliab speaks up. He says, And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. Keep in mind, this comes from someone who is almost certainly filled with secret shame, right? Israel's army hasn't moved. They haven't acted. And Eliab knows this, right? So he accuses David of something instead. He accuses David of two things. First, he says, you abandoned your post. You abandoned your not-so-important job. He's making fun of the few sheep that he's supposed to be watching. He's minimizing the responsibility. Right? Uh, uh, what's your job again? Uh, sheep watcher, what are you doing talking to, to us about military preparation? We know what we're doing with swords, even if we don't use them. Second, David is accused of being bloodthirsty, right? He says, oh, you just came here for the blood sport, right? You didn't come here to help. You just came here to watch us die. And you're so disappointed that you didn't get to see that, huh? It's one of those moments where you just kind of pause as a reader and say, man, I'm really glad Samuel was wrong. I am really glad this guy was not going to be the next king of Israel. And this may seem like a strange place for the narrative to stop, right? It sort of ends with 
uh, David getting chastised by his brother and then responding with kind of annoyance. It, it's very much a brother fight. The passage ends with a very nagging kind of a irritated brotherly interaction, and then the narrative ends, you know. And partly that's because um, that we, we, we don't want to try to fit too much into this passage, into what we cover in one message. I don't want to do 75 verses for one sermon. But I want you to see this. I hope you hear this, that the, the, the narrative does end at least with hints of hope. Because David's brother speaks against him. And he doesn't speak against him because he has Israel's well-being in mind. David's brother speaks against him because he's envious. David's brother speaks against him because he's filled with shame over his own self and his own heart and his own life and the way he's lived. See, Eliab was the firstborn brother. And you remember this, that, 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 that moment when Samuel came to the farm and he looked at Eliab and there was so much promise in this young man. And there's so much handsomeness. There's all the superficialities that someone would say, this is going to be a great king. And yet what he's filled with shame because he was passed over. In Eliab's mind, he was neglected. This was his. This was his to have. He was supposed to have this. Eliab is speaking to his younger brother, and he knows he's anointed. He knows he's supposed to be king someday. And what is his, what is his response? Shame and jealousy. Right? Eliab has a job to do, and he isn't doing it, and his brother comes up, and he seems to have this boldness. And so what does he do? He accuses David of not doing what he's called to do. In fact, he says, you're not about your father's business, and you're supposed to be about your father's business. And yet it turns out David is doing exactly what he's supposed to do, and he is exactly where he's supposed to be. There's a picture starting to form here, and it's a picture that begins to look like a reflection of Jesus. You see Jesus typified in this moment, right? Because how was Jesus treated like by, like by his brothers? The Jews accused Jesus of being ambitious. They accused Jesus of rejecting the law. They accused Jesus of disobeying his father. In fact, they were the ones who were rejecting God's law. Jesus was the one who was doing what his father called him to do. He was the one who was about his father's business. And just like Eliab did with David, where the Jews took it upon themselves to judge Jesus and judge his heart and judge his affections, David is being good and virtuous and obedient. And then the accusation comes, I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. There are numerous places in the New Testament when the Pharisees tell Jesus that they know what's going on in his heart and that he's selfish and that he's full of evil. They're sure of it. David was envied by his brothers. And in that sense, David is a type of Christ here. Because what happens when Jesus comes on the scene? Jesus is rejected by his brothers, the Jews. And by his actual family brothers as well. Even here tonight, what happens? The Savior of Israel stands accused falsely. Just like a thousand years later, the Son of David would stand accused falsely by his brothers as well. The question each of us have to answer is, will we throw ourselves upon the grace and mercy of God in Christ, 
Or will we stand in our own strength like David's brothers and insist we can take care of ourselves? Just like Israel tonight, what are we? Not what do we believe about ourselves, but what are we really? The answer of Scripture is we are sinners in need of a Savior. We need a Savior. God is calling us to rest in and trust in Him. Let's do that. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, your Son entered this world to rescue us. He came as an ordinary man, born in an ordinary place to ordinary parents. He lived under the law. He lived the life we could not. He lived in the midst of his brothers, the Jews, and stood accused by them. Not because he sinned in ambition, but because they envied him. We also know that he entered this world to vanquish our greatest enemy of all, and that is sin. He did it for love. He did it for us. And he did it for the sake of your people whom you love. Fill us with a confident sense that we are among your beloved. And make us take shelter in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.